Good morning and happy Friday. This is Lana Cohen with Byline Mendocino. Today we have two California scientists live on the air to talk to you about how the drought is affecting all the natural ecosystems that make up Mendocino. As you all know, the drought situation is severe. Back-to-back -back years of low precipitation have left rivers parched, aquifers depleted, and wells coughing up dust in California. Both Ukiah and Fort Bragg got less rain over the past two years than they did during prior periods of severe drought, including from 2013 to 2015 and from 1975 to 1977. The effects of the drought on agriculture, municipal systems, and businesses are obvious. Last month, over 200 agricultural connections were shut off in Redwood Valley. On the coast, Inns and bed and breakfasts are already trucking in water to supplement wells that are no longer supplying water. And wine growers across the county are seeing negative impacts on their crops. What's a little less clear is how the drought is affecting Mendocino's natural environment. The wetlands, forests, and rivers that both need water to survive and are crucial to creating and maintaining a healthy hydrological system, as well as the flora and fauna that create fun functioning ecosystems. That's why I brought on scientists Anna Halligan and John Aboxaglu today to explain how two years in a row of paltry precipitation have impacted nature in Mendocino and California. Halligan works for Trout Unlimited as the North Coast Coho Project Director, and Aboxaglu is a professor at the University of California Merced, where he studies climate variability and the changing climate's impacts on natural resources. Morning, John. Good morning, Anna. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing well. Thanks, Lana, for having us. Oh, thank you so yeah, much I'm for being here. Well, okay, so, John, I wanted to talk to you first and ask you a little bit about, about your climatologist. So I wanted to know, is there any connection between this drought and climate change? Yeah, um... Let's not talk about this individual drought, but let's talk about droughts in general. And part of the drought story is how much precipitation falls. And part of the drought story is how much moisture is pulled out of the atmosphere. That latter half is really dominated by how warm um, the atmosphere, how warm the atmosphere is. And what we've seen in the Western United States and parts of the globe, is an increasingly thirsty atmosphere. And that, 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 that is basically taxing the water that does fall. In the Western United States, we've seen about an additional three inches of moisture demanded by the atmosphere as a result of a warming climate over the past 50 years. So droughts, are, droughts, you know, droughts by nature are mainly a function of a lack of precipitation, but the fact that we are seeing a warmer atmosphere is making it that much more acute. And so what kind of impact is that having on ecosystems in California? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the impacts of drought, like you mentioned before, we often think about, um, you know, agricultural productivity. Um, but it's not doesn't take too much to see the impacts on natural systems in California. And we should we should preface that by saying that um, California is used to wild year to year swings in precipitation. A lot of our natural ecosystems are adapted to this volatility. Um, that being said, right back to back dry years, realistically, you know, the last 20 years, we've seen really, really low water availability in the summer. 
And we're beginning to see that some of these natural systems that are designed to deal with drought fail. Um, and so at least the, some of the things that I study in, in terms of fire and vegetation impacts, we, we see that play. We, we see, seen that play out across California during the past drought. Right now, when we survey the landscape and look at how dry our fuels are, um, they're about as dry as they should be in early July. So we've basically, you know, jump-started the dry season here by having a lackluster winter by uh, a month, a month and a half. Yeah, so you mentioned that some of these systems that are designed to deal with drought because of our really naturally variable climate where it rains in the winter and it's dry all summer are starting to fail. And so, Anna, I want to go to you because I know that you do a lot of work in the field working with coho and fish in rivers and streams. And I wanted to know, what are you seeing out in the field right now? Is it, are things looking different than they usually look at this time of year? Well, yeah, I mean, so I, I primarily work in freshwater systems, so our rivers and creeks. And the most noticeable thing right now is just that stream flows are lower than they would be typically this time of year. Um, although I should note that, you know, I think we all need to start rethinking about what typical means now. Um, NOAA Fisheries has kept climate data for over 30 years, and they're starting to think about averages now in the last 15 years rather than 30, because um, as previously noted, we are, you know, because of climate change, we are asking questions right now, like when is a drought a drought <laughs> anymore? And, and are we really experiencing a temporary, you know, um, climate effect or is this and I think really it's not a question it's it is the statement that we are now entering into a time period when dryness um, in our environments is going to be more prolonged and we need to start thinking about what is typical in a new way so this year though I will say stream flows are low um, and and that can have um, lots of different impacts on um, species that that you know, rely on those freshwater systems. Um, obviously, uh, animals that are really dependent on water, like fish, you know, are critically uh, vulnerable to low flow conditions. If you don't have water, you won't have fish. Um, but there's other aquatic organisms like frogs and salamanders that rely on water for specific um, time periods in their life cycles. And, um, and then Beyond that, you know, as flows get lower, water temperatures rise, and that has impacts on water quality. Um, and also flows can become um, kind of intermittent between pools, which fractures habitat. So then there's issues there too. So, so these are the things that we're starting to see in the field now are lower flow conditions, kind of reduced ability for these species that are dependent on water to move up and down the system. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, some systems are starting to get completely dry, but it's still a little bit early for that. Um, I think as the summer progresses, we're going to see some pretty, um, some pretty dry conditions in our rivers and creeks and other wetlands. Yeah, I just wanted to remind listeners that 
This morning you're listening to Lana Cohen with Byline Mendocino at KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. And we have Anna Halligan and John Aboxaglu with us to talk about how drought is impacting ecosystems in California. So, you know, I was reading this article in the Los Angeles Times about how maybe this isn't a new drought. Maybe this last these last two years aren't a new drought at all, and maybe we've been in a drought for the past 10 years. And the point that this article made was that although some reservoirs might rec- might have recovered in 2017 when we got a lot of rain, and some municipal systems might have recovered in 2017 when we got a lot of rain, ecosystems actually take a lot longer to recover. And things like trees and the soil and the creeks, they need more than one year of really good rain to get out of a drought. And I was wondering, John, if you would be able to comment on that. Yeah, so the the first part of that refers to the so-called mega drought that um, a colleague of mine, Park Williams, who's at UCLA, um, we looked into. And effectively looking at both the observational record and then extending it back using a series of tree rings that are basically tracking, you know, the moisture availability through time. We basically are able to come up with this statistic that the current, the last 20, 22 years or so, the sec are this is the second driest such period in at least 1200 years. So we are in a long-term drought. Yes, there have been some wet years sort of, you know, mixed in, um, and the second part, right, is that we have seen, um, like, we, we, we certainly can see systems recover fairly quickly, but there is a legacy effect in some of these ecosystems. Um, and certainly when we think about, you know, an individual wet year, what does that do for an ecosystem? There may be some systems that are able to respond very quickly and adapt to that. Um, other systems that maybe are relying on a more reliable uh, amount of moisture over a, a number of years. And so... Um, having that big drink of water, like, for example, um, in, I think, 2019, right, that may not have actually satisfied and actually brought these systems back up to being resilient to yet another, you know, extended drought like we're going through right now. Um, So, Anna, I actually brought you on specifically because coho are such an important species to our region. They have cultural importance, they're important to the economy, they're important to indigenous communities in the area. And so John just mentioned this legacy effect. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that there's a legacy effect on these species, on these coho and the streams that you work with in the North Coast? Uh, A legacy effect of drought specifically? Yes. Um, Well, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that a bit. So coho salmon, we'll talk, we can start with kind of what coho salmon really need to survive. And they need cold, fresh water that has a lot of oxygen in it. And they need um, that water to be able to also sustain the food resources that they rely on. Um, And, you know, one thing that's, that is, actually really critical about having, you know, uh, streams that have continuous stream flow is that food then drifts with that stream flow and is carried throughout the aquatic ecosystem. So, so fish really do need to have 
it's best if they are not trapped in an isolated pool and they have the ability to have food drift down to them and then to move between certain habitat units. Um, and, um, and coho, they, they have, they live in both the marine and freshwater, um, environments, but when they're in their freshwater environments, they, they really need well protected, um, which means like having wood or, or an undercut bank or some, some place where they can hide from predators, well protected, cold water, um, habitats. And, um, and so coho salmon also have, as you mentioned, have been around for an extremely long period of time. Um, and I think that the changes they, they have, they now are endangered in our area and threatened farther north in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and what the primary reasons why these fish are endangered is because of impacts to their habitat. And that's either, you know, um, impacts that have inhibited them from getting to habitat or actual degradation of habitat and climate change just exacerbates all of those previous impacts. And it, it really um, amplifies the effect that has um, happened to this population over time. And that effect has been that it has been in decline. Um, recently in the Mendocino Coast, we have been seeing some positive trends with coho returns and, and coho production. Um, climate change makes it really hard to know if those types of kind of uh, positive trends can persist. Um, and so I think, you know, as far as, far as like legacy effects, um, this species has been around for a long time. It has been able to adapt during different climate regimes over geologic history. But right now, I think the combination of stressors that came from different human-induced impacts and that compiled with the stressors of climate change, which this drought is really um, a reflection of our changed climate. And, um, and so those two things are probably combined, really um, amplifying the effect on coho populations in the state and in our region. And John, what kind of, what are the biggest legacy effects that you're seeing in your work? What different parts of different ecosystems are being impacted most by this drought or this mega drought that's been going on for a while now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, moving a little bit beyond maybe the Mendocino area, although the impacts may be realized there as well. Um, we have seen massive tree mortality in California um, following that the sort of the drought that started in, you know, the, the, the drought that started in 2012 or so, right? And so over a series of years, right, the lack of available water, primarily in the summer, um, allowed for massive tree mortality that those trees are out there on the landscape right now. They're dead trees. We know that dry fuel is able, sorry, dead fuel dries out much quicker than live living vegetation. And that primes the landscape for fire. Right. And, and that's one of these potential feedbacks that we see, for example, last year, um, the Creek fire, which was the single largest fire that has burned in California, um, burned in a patch of a lot of tree mortality um, that occurred a few years prior to that. So that's one example of the type of legacy effect that we might see, particularly with some of these more, you know, um, 
I don't want to call it catastrophic because fire is also good, but some of these more explosive impacts um, of, of drought coupled with fire. Yeah, tree mortality was something that I was thinking a lot about um, planning for this show because I know that all, all over the place, trees are dying and there's increased tree disease and all of these things are related to drought. And of course, I spend a lot of time talking about fire and researching fire. You know, even just this morning, my news show was about the as was about how the drought is going to impact fire season in the county so you know thinking about those things and how those might exacerbate the effects are of course really scary and i'm also interested in what are those types of things what is tree mortality doing to the entire ecosystem of course everything is connected so how does tree mortality impact the water system or how does tree mortality impact other creatures that live in that area if you might be able to answer that yeah, this is getting a little bit outside of my expertise. I can, you know, touch on the water side, right? Um, so living trees use water. And so there may be a small silver lining, right? If we're worrying about sort of water supply, be it for fish, be it for people, be it for farms, um, you know, yes, tree mortality is bad it also may mean that there's a little bit more stream flow in some systems, right? There's less water being used by vegetation because it is effectively dead. Um, that can vary quite a bit from place to place. Although in the Sierra Nevada, at least, there's some evidence to suggest that sort of post, you know, post fire, post tree mortality, there ends up being a little bit more water yield from, from that system. So I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Anna, um, when you said that you guys start, are starting to think about when is a drought a drought and we all need to start thinking about what what typical is anymore and has that changed? And I was wondering what type of work Trout Unlimited is doing to, to tackle that, to tackle mm. what might be a new normal or a new abnormal, however you like to say it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the common term is the new normal, um, and it may not actually be that abnormal in the grand time frame, like in geologic time. I think, you know, most people consider the first part of the 20th century to have been actually a uniquely wet period in geologic history. And now we are looking at um, a trend of dry conditions, and occasionally we get some wetter winters, as you referenced earlier. But really, we're looking at a trend of dry conditions. And, and like if you look in the Colorado River Basin, they're asking questions about really, are they dealing with drought? Or are they de dealing with like, you know, basically the process of um, environments becoming more and more arid? Um, and and so, so um, you know, I think one of the things that we're... I mean, I think that in and of itself is something that Trout Unlimited is kind of grappling with. We have a really interesting crew in California that specifically focuses on monitoring stream flow and on um, developing policy and projects that can um, benefit both um, freshwater resources for fish and for other aquatic organisms, but also for people. So it's, it's kind of transitioning the, the, the ways that we use and manage our water. Um, here locally, a lot of people rely on stream flow as their domestic water um, source or on shallow groundwater wells. And so one of the things that Trout Unlimited is 
has been doing and is continuing to do is to look at ways that water can be stored in the winter when precipitation and rainfall is more abundant um, to in order to reduce our demand in use when water resources are low in the summer. Um, and so there's lots of different ways to do that. Um, the primary function is to storage. So, and that can be tanks, ponds. Um, you can store water in the ground too, through in, in marshes and wetlands and floodplains. Um, and so we're looking at different kinds of both kind of infrastructure improvements that don't necessarily, it's not, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really um, an issue of timing and use. So when is the water falling? When can, we when can we collect it? And how much do we need for use throughout the year? Um, and so that's kind of the, the human use part, that relationship that, you know, we as humans and the rest of the natural resources that rely on water need to balance out. And there's, and it's really not that complex. And so that's, what's kind of maybe inspiring about, um, the future is that if we can be innovative and if we can manage our water resources in a way that makes sense, we may not have, um, as much scarcity issue. Um, and we can probably time things so that other species aren't impacted by our use. But from a habitat perspective, you know, one of the things that's really hard with this prolonged, these prolonged dry periods and climate change, because we're either getting less rain and then it's warmer in the summer. So we're losing water more quickly. It's a, it's a runoff um, efficiency issue where the rainfall falls and it runs off into our streams. But if it's not... Um, being stored as snow, like in the Sierras, or if it's not being stored in our um, soil habitats, then we or our wetland habitats, then we are going to have issues with water resources becoming scarcer and scarcer as the summer, you know, progresses. So, from a habitat perspective, we are really looking at doing lots and lots of wetland restoration. Um, our crew in the Sierra is doing a lot of um, Sierra, me Sierra meadow restoration because we know those high elevation meadows are incredible water aquifers. Um, we are looking at, um, we're currently working here on some kind of pilot projects that are looking at ways that we can actually um, just slow down the rate of surface runoff during big rain events by, you know, it's kind of the classic water cycle rule to slow spread and sink water over time. So we're looking at land use impacts like from roads where water that often shed water more quickly and trying to find different types of um, techniques that we can use that can use that can slow that surface water down and allow it to infiltrate into these types of wetlands and floodplains and, and other aquatic habitats. Um, floodplain restoration, I think, will be a really, really important habitat um, kind of uh, priority in the future because in addition to having drier periods, we're also probably going to be facing more intense storms in our winters when we do have wet years. And that can result in, you know, lots of impacts to people through flooding, but then also impacts to habitat and having healthy functioning floodplains is going to be really important because we can trap that water and then retain it on the landscape for a longer period of time.
Well, it's really great to hear you say all of that, Anna, because as a climate reporter, I spend a lot of time hearing about how things are really bad. And it's great to hear some of these solutions that Trout Unlimited is working on and I know other groups are working on. And it's so important to hear about those things also because there are changes that we can make to improve our climate situation and that can't be forgotten. Um, I just wanted to remind listeners that this morning you're listening to Lana Cohen with Byline Mendocino. I have John Aboxaglu and Anna Halligan live on the air this morning to talk about how drought is impacting ecosystems in California. You're listening to KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. I also want to tell listeners that Starting at 9.45, the last 15 minutes of this show, we will open up phone lines. So you have, if you have questions directly for Halligan or a box glue, you can call in and you can ask them a- about what they do. So, and it's also, I was thinking a lot about what you're saying about wetland restoration, Anna. Last year around this time, um, I went down to a big wetland in Willits and there were, we went down really early in the morning. I went there at sunrise. There were all these birds And the scientists there told me that fish swim through this area and there were deer and all sorts of animals that you can tell use this land as a place to get water and all the other resources they need, even during the hot, dry, well, it's summer. So that's kind of something that I've been personally thinking a lot about, just wondering about how those creatures are doing this year and hoping that they'll be able to make it through. Um, So... Um, John, you were doing a lot of nodding when Anna was talking about how at the Colorado River, they're trying to talk, considering the Colorado River situation, people are talking about whether we're dealing with a drought or we're just dealing with this more arid climate. So I was wondering if you think California is going in the same way, if maybe, and Anna also mentioned that the early part of the 20th century might have been a particularly wet period rather than being the normal so I was wondering if you're seeing California going into just a more arid environment and if maybe the climate of California just isn't what we thought it was. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I think certainly the last 30 years may not always be a guide for what we expect um, this year, next year, etc. So we, given that we are seeing a changing climate, the idea of a normal is referring to some past period that no longer really exists. We don't expect that. Um, we are seeing an aridification, right? The landscape is drying out um, across the sort of the southwestern United States. Um, interestingly, in California, um, you know, precipitation, if you just look at precipitation alone, it hasn't changed a ton. One thing that we are, one thing that we really have seen with, in terms of precipitation and a pretty robust signal from climate change is basically our wet seasons are contracted, right? And so we end up losing um, precipitation in the fall and in the spring. Um, and that, you know, that puts an onus on having more water at a short over a shorter period of time. And it highlights the importance of, of some of the management strategies that Anna was referring to. So expect expect not really a big change in overall precipitation, but its seasonality will contract. We will see increases in the really, really wet years um, and increases in really wet events, right? And so I think, you know, our Mediterranean climate, we're still going to have a Mediterranean climate, right? But the characteristics are certainly changing. 
um, and um, the influence of a warming and drying climate cannot be ignored, right? We're seeing that play out quite, quite, quite profoundly. So Anna talked a lot about storage and as one of the main solutions for dealing with this change in our climate, what do you see as some of the solutions to dealing with this contracting wet season and maybe these more extreme weather events followed by longer periods of aridity? Yeah, and I think stor- storage is, is is certainly the one that makes a lot of sense. Um, in natural storage solutions as well, you know, obviously building dams only works if you have water that falls and actually can replenish those those reservoirs. So using these natural systems provides co-benefits, like you were mentioning before, you provide natural habitat, etc. Um, a lot of that water also can be stored below ground. And so in, in some cases, if you're storing water below ground, then it may not be able to be as easily sort of pulled out of the soil by a warming and drying climate. Um, you know, ultimately, these solutions are going to be very sort of, you know, case dependent. And so there may not be a one size fits all approach. Yeah, and definitely from a lot of the research that I've done over the past year, talk, learning about drought in California, it seems like not only are things going to be case dependent, but that basically every solution is going to have to come forward. We're going to have to be using everything that we have. And I'm thinking about just last week, or no, it was actually earlier this week, long week, that I watched a drought summit with our congressman, Congressman Jared Huffman, and lots of Russian River water stakeholders and local water leaders from Sonoma and Mendocino attended. And everybody was talking about all sorts of solutions about about recycling water, about storage, about all sorts of different things to try to figure out how to make it through this and how to continue to provide water. And of course, that's kind of, that's really what prompted this show is that that was talking a lot about agriculture and municipal systems. But as an environmental reporter, I definitely just wanted to make sure that I was also thinking about how this is impacting ecosystems and all sorts of ecosystems, especially considering how water is so related to every single thing that we do. So if we don't have healthy ecosystems, if we don't have healthy wetlands, then how are we going to have these healthy water systems? We won't have water to store. And, you know, wetlands, of course, are known as being the sponge. They can store all this water for a really long time and then kind of release it over a longer period of time. And, you know, I know these natural storage events are so important because man-made storage events can work. But these natural storage processes have been happening for a really long time. And I know that especially with losing the snowpack, which is set to have just a gigantic impact on everything it's going to be really important to have more storage and you know i have looked a little bit into what it's going to mean to lose the snowpack but i actually haven't looked into it that much just because it's a little far off from us and of course everything is related in the hydrological system but we don't have snowpack here in the county so it's not something that i think about a ton and so John, I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about snowpack in California, the loss of the snowpack in California, and how that might impact a county like Mendocino that maybe doesn't have a ton of water coming directly off of it, that doesn't have snow, (laughs) a ton of snow. (laughs) 
Right. Yeah. And un- unfortunately, I do not know about the sort of water con- water conveyance systems in terms of providing water from, say, the Sacramento drainage over to Mendocino County. Um, but absolutely, your point about sort of the loss of, of the, the key sort of the most important water storage system we have in the West, which is mountain snowpack. You know, it doesn't take a doesn't take a climate scientist, a rocket scientist to realize that warming means that we will have less precipitation falling and sticking as snow. Um, we've seen that play out. We've seen snow droughts, another type of drought um, materialize. Um, we expect that snowpack storage in in spring is going to continue to decay moving into the you know middle half of the 21st century and that's going to put an even greater reliance on some of these other solutions for storing water yeah i recently read from um, climate scientist daniel swain that a very well-known climate scientist and blogger that our snowpack is actually at eight percent of normal i think that was as of earlier this week for this time of year, which is of course very concerning because I can't remember the number, you might know, but if you don't, that's fine, that our snowpack, it's the largest reservoir in California, I know that, and that it holds just something like just a humongous percentage of the water and that we use in the state. So losing that is really one of those things that's gonna trigger a whole transition of the systems that we have in California relying when you rely on something like we rely a lot on the snowpack here and then in the southwest they rely really heavily on the Colorado River as those systems start to change then we have to change with them which is hard especially if you don't consider if you just consider this drought as another fluke as another two years of dry and next year it'll rain and everything will go back to normal that's one of the reasons that it's important to start thinking about maybe that we're not going to get these big years of rain. We're not going to have 10 years of really good rain in a row anymore. We're going to have to start storing water in better ways and stuff like that. And I'm thinking a little bit about what you were talking about earlier, Anna, um, about using more storage so that it, so that coho have more water in the summer because we need to provide water for the people that need it, for the agricultural systems that need it, but also for the creatures that need it. And just thinking a lot about how I've been talking to all sorts of local leaders about different storage systems and what that could mean for people and understanding that storing that water for people also has this other co-benefit that if we store the water for people, then we can have more water running free in the rivers in the summer for the creatures that need it, especially as it gets hotter because, as you said, what's really important for coho is this cold water habitat and less water is going to get hotter faster. So that's something really important to think about. And I also wanted to learn a little bit more about, um, and maybe John will go back to you on this, about how having less water in soil um, impacts the environment in in California. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that, that soil moisture is really key for um, enabling product vegetation productivity throughout the throughout the summer, and so in a lot of species in California, because they're sort they've sort of evolved with sort of you know uh, not having precipitation to sort of drink from in the summer, they're sort of really tapping soil moisture, and they can actually tap soil moisture down to some pretty impressive depths. So the lack of soil moisture, if we see multiple years in a row of really subpar soil moisture in the summer um, that begins to constrain productivity right the ability of that vegetation to grow take up carbon 
Um, and in many cases, when you have a lack of productivity, you can also lead to drought mortality in some of these systems. So um, that is something that we are certainly tracking um, this year as well. And obviously the lack of precipitation, um, really warm and dry conditions the last say two months or so, that's sort of, you know, um, more or less going to sort of mean really, really subpar soil moisture this summer, which, you know, like last summer, two years in a row, doesn't bode well for a lot of systems that are either living and then also, for um, vegetation that's trying to regenerate, so we obviously, you know, uh, you're 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 in a you're in an area that has seen an incredible amount of fire off to your east in the past several years. Um, those landscapes recover, right? There's post-fire regeneration, but the reality is is that if you have low soil moisture um, as trees are regenerating, that regeneration will fail, and so that that is a concern when you have when you sort of you know spring together several years of really really you know crummy water availability for trees that are trying to you know regenerate in the landscape yeah that sounds like maybe one of those or very early on in the show you mentioned um that some natural systems in california which are of course designed to deal with drought are starting to fail and it sounds like that might be one of those systems that so many years of drought in a row then these big trees that are used to maybe a summer without water start to struggle more and more um so this change in climate and natural systems starting to fail what does the future of california look like kind of what's a picture that you might be able to help paint for us is it going to be all just one giant desert in 500 years, like what, what are you guys anticipating? Or you can say if, if you can't anticipate that far in advance. I know that scientists have to be very specific about everything that they do. Well, I could give you a little bit of a, an insight into what the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is thinking about with regards to the species that are most at risk or vulnerable to drought. Um, so from a habitat perspective, so, you know, California, it has more native species than any other state. Um, and it has the greatest number of endemic species, which, you know, those are species that occur nowhere else in the world. Um, and many of these species are rare and, and as such, they're subject to a variety of threats and stressors, including drought. Um, and even though California species have adapted um, to periods of drought, some still are more vulnerable to extended and frequent severe droughts, um, and that vulnerability can make them more inclined to be at risk of extirpation, which is like a local extinction. Um, so California, as a result, um, you know, Cal the California resource agencies are um, trying to do assessments to figure out what species are most at risk. And CDFW identified um, 358 sensitive um, vertebrate taxa in the state. Um, and of that, they kind of prioritized them. There's 48 species that are at the most, most risk of, um, of just you know, extirpation or extinction. And then there's another 57 that are highly vulnerable to prolonged drought. Um, and these include amphibians, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And there's even um, three species of bats that are also 
at risk. Um, so 80% of the state's sensitive amphibian species were ID ID'd as, um, as being at risk of drought. And, and so, um, so, for, so from a, from a fish and wildlife perspective, we have a lot of species that depend on aquatic systems at some point in their life. And, um, and so, you know, some species will probably be able to adapt um, if they have adequate like behavioral and genetic diversity and they have enough time to adapt. Um, but what we're kind of looking at when you're thinking about drought, drought vulnerability is, you know, what's, how is drought going to affect annual survival of these species? You know, like how, the species particularly that depend on water to live. How does it affect their reproduction? How does it affect geographic range? Um, and so what I think we could see with prolonged droughts are really big shifts in um, the types of species and the types of habitats that we have on our landscape. Um, and, and that could mean that we will also see um, a lot of loss of species and loss of habitat types. And some of the species that really are at the most risk, like birds and mammals, are inland marsh habitats. Um, so it's going, I, I think, you know, the, the really interesting and amazing thing about the natural world is that it, it has an ability to adapt and fluctuate. And so we're really going to be watching changes and shifts over time of populations and habitats. And it's really hard to predict exactly, you know, what those changes will be and when they will occur because, um, we're constantly getting new information to inform our models that make those predictions. Um, but we do expect to see a lot of change. And I think that's probably something, we, again, that we all just have to become accustomed to. We, we are going to um, need to be, uh, you know, to the best extent we can to make sure that we have a mosaic of habitats that's really resilient to different climate change stressors so that we don't lose a lot of biodiversity. Um, but we, I think we also just kind of have to be prepared that that is something that will occur over time in the future, that we will see some loss of species and habitats. Yeah, I just wanted to tell listeners that we will be taking callers in one minute. I see that someone is waiting on the line, so I'll be with you in a second. I just wanted to remind everybody that you are listening to KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Okay, let's hear from our caller. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Thanks for taking my call. So I have two questions. One uh, I'll start with, um, and I'll say them both, and then I'll take my answers off the air. Um on the air. Um, I wanted to ask about using ocean water both for storage and usage and the possibility of increasing usage by desalinization and, and how does that figure in. And then my second question, thinking about the mosaic of habitats, is in, in, in California, beavers are considered a nuisance species. But as habitat builders, I would imagine that 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 
allowing beavers to be more present in our wild life and, uh, and doing their work of building habitat and protection for uh, coho, uh, other fish, and other animals, and help mitigating cold water habitats. If, if, if your guests can um, speak to both of those things, and I will take my, I will go ahead and hang up and listen. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for those two really great questions. Um, I will ask them right now if they can take those questions, and maybe we can start with beavers, and then we can go to D cell. So that sounds like maybe that is Anna's territory. Yeah, that's always, you know, that was a great question. I'm so glad someone brought up beavers, our original water engineers. Um, So, and we actually do have local populations of beavers here on the Mendocino Coast. They're kind of scant, but they do exist. And they are incredible um, dam builders, which are, you know, it's, it's, they have this ability to impound water in a way that doesn't have a lot of negative impacts on other wildlife. And, and by an impounding just means kind of like holding water in like a pool behind their dams. Um, and that has a lot of benefit for holding water on the landscape for, for longer periods of time. Um, I know um, in the field of restoration, we are trying to actually mimic the work that beavers do. Um, and that's really challenging. Uh, there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration when, when doing that, um, beavers definitely do it better than, than people, probably. Um, but, but really, like looking to them as guides to how do you create these diverse, complex um, water habitats. Um, I think also, uh, you know, yes, beavers are viewed as a nuisance animal for a lot of reasons. And there's been some interesting innovations made to help reduce the impacts of beavers. One thing that beavers often do, and this is kind of why they get a bad reputation, is um, they're very opportunistic and they tend to um, like rely on culverts as a partial dam that's already built for them. And all they have to do is build the rest of the the dam across the culvert inlet and they've got a great pool. Um, and so that's always been like, a, you know, a common issue with, with beavers. Um, there's actually technology now that you can, you can install these, um, this, this kind of culvert infrastructure beneath the beaver dam to retain the dam, but also to continue to, <laughs> to have, to, to not create a, a, a nuisance to your culvert that could potentially impact its structural stability. Um, and I think that, you know, we do need to think about the, Potentially, you know, the wildlife managers, and I know they're grappling with this now. It's a really challenging issue for the for the areas where where beavers really are um, resulting in some land management issues. But I think you know the agencies that that kind of issue predation permits may need to really start thinking about you know how they're managing that species um, and potentially come you know look at these other alternatives that don't necessarily remove the beaver from the habitat, but find a way for the beaver to maintain, you know, to, to exist on the habitat, but still reduce any potential negative um, land use management issues. So um, there, yeah, we often in the restoration field consider them to be like, you know, our, our mascot, they are the original um, freshwater habitat (laughs) restorers, but and there are challenges to to either reintroducing them or to, to managing them. Um, but if you have them on your landscape, I would consider that to be a pretty good thing. 
Well, thank you so much, Anna. And I know that desalinization might be a little bit out of both of your jurisdictions, but John, would you be able to take it at all? I can try. Yeah. So desalinization is certainly something that California has been exploring. And I believe that parts of Southern California along the coast, they've been looking at that. Um, I feel like there are a lot of economic um, costs to doing so. And so it comes down to how much do you want to pay for your water? And then there's also some of the questions about sort of the energy costs associated with desalinization. Um, it has worked in other areas. So I think places in like in Israel, they've actually gone to desalinization to adapt because they live, they live in a very water stressed environment um, and it's been effective there. So whether this is going to be a solution, you know, more broadly, I don't know, but um, the technology exists. The cost is quite high. Well, thank you so much, John. So we have another caller. One moment. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Yeah, hi. I would like to make three suggestions. One is wind in California is very strong. And anybody who knows about an air conditioner, he knows that there's water generated by condensation. So imagine you have a windmill where the stem of the windmill is a water tank. And as the wind blows from the coast, generates electricity and run a condenser to produce water. So uh, these technologies are all available. It just has never been taken up. The second I would like to say is so much water is taken out by water tanks from the river. We live uh, near the Eel River. We live near the Russian River. Uh, in Potter Valley, the Cash Creek is being pumped out by water tanks, hundreds and thousands all over California. We need regulations. We, we need to not empty our rivers and produce water in other ways, by conserving water, for instance. And the third, I would like to say, is the drought in California has much fires, wildfires, and the best way, uh, and instead of cutting all the trees and everything down and drying out the atmosphere even more, it would be more advisable to put an extra water connection, like instead of the bathroom, you have one for the garden, put a water hose connection on the roof of your house with a rainbird sprinkler and the moment there's fire dangers you can turn on the sprinkler and the whole area around the house is being wetted and protected from the fire and you can also use it as landscaping and you can use it as for your garden and so many ideas you can produce the water on site by the wind because nature has water in the atmosphere. Well, and it's, we have the technology to take it out from the atmosphere. Yes. And then you, Thank you so much, Caller. You're this, welcome. This was, I really appreciate your input. Thank you so much. So, 
We actually have one more caller, so oh, two more callers. Let's see what they have to say. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was hoping that your guests might be able to speak to the fur encroachment issues that we're having and how um, much water is being sucked from the ground through the fir tree issues. I, I like trees myself also, but it doesn't seem like there's much of a balance right now. And um, I also am happy that they mentioned the amount of humidity that uh, it takes to keep uh, some of these uh, uh, ecosystems uh, going. Um, that, would, that, uh, that was one question I had. And my second question is, have your guests noticed... Uh, how tropical some of the areas where um, redwood trees had been uh, clear-cut um, in the past and how vinier plants are growing in the area. And in some cases, we have um, parrots that I don't know if they've been let go, but they seem to be propagating in this area, suggesting that we might be moving more towards a tropical environment. Thanks, and I'll take my answer off the air. Okay, well, thank you so much. I was wondering if maybe um, I actually haven't heard anything about um, issues with fir trees, so I would love to hear a little bit about that. Um, or have either of you guys heard anything about fir trees um, so- soaking up a lot of water in the area? Well, this actually is a topic of discussion that um, is of interest to me and has been um, kind of recently. Uh, in the ether quite a bit lately. Um, and it's not just fir trees. It's just this, this notion that um, due to the, you know, relative waves of, of timber extraction in the area, we have more even age forests now, and there's not a lot of diversity in the age classes of our trees. And so, you know, the question is, if we have younger forests that have more uh, kind of saplings in in younger trees, do they take more water? Um, We know, and and, and John talked about this earlier, um, it's, you know, in in episodes of fire or even in the the Casper watershed, there's been a lot of research done about how clear cuts also, um, you know, shortly after an area has been deforested, there actually is an increase in the amount of water um, but that's because there's more surface runoff so that the water sheds um, from the land more quickly because there are less trees and vegetation to intercept it. Um, and so so that's where this question comes of is do our younger forests take more water? Um, and there is a lot of um, factors that have to be taken in, into consideration to answer that question. And there is a lot of research that is currently ongoing. Um, one of the factors that's that's really important that you have to address in answering that question is what type of geology is your forest sitting on top of? Because that has a pretty significant um, result in answering that question. And here on the coast, we have a, well, throughout all of Mendocino County, we have shallow aquifers. But on the coast, we have a little bit deeper, but it's very porous. Um, it's kind of like a, a sponge that that leaks, you know, or a leaky bucket. Um, so it's shallow and it drains. Um, so, th- so we're, 
So it's, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, the fur encroachment too, there are issues where we're losing some meadow habitats because we are getting lots of fur encroachment and there are some benefits to managing that to, to maintain those meadow habitats. Um, I know some oak woodland habitats are being um, constrained due to fur encroachment. Um, so again, you know, if we want to have a diverse mosaic of habitats, there may be some land management activities that we would want to prescribe to, to maintain those habitats. Um, I think we need to learn a lot more before we can answer the question of whether these younger forests are taking up more water, but there is some research to indicate that they are and that having a uneven aged forest will be a healthier and more resilient forest um, with regards to water availability and to fire resilience. Well, thank you so much, Anna. I just wanted to remind listeners that you are listening to Lana Cohen with Byline Mendocino. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. So we only have a minute and a half left of the show. I just wanted to end with some quick fun questions for both John and Anna. We'll start with John. I wanted to ask you what your favorite California ecosystem is and why. Well, for your audience, I, I, I think I, I, I do love the coastal redwood. Um, it's a very, uh, a very nice ecosystem to be in. Um, I sort of grew up in sort of the southernmost extent of the redwood forest there, um, and I've always enjoyed that landscape. Okay, and Anna, what is your favorite California ecosystem and why? Oh, well, this will probably be pretty obvious. Um, I, I really love uh, river and creek freshwater ecosystems. Um, I think why goes back to even just, just my youth. I have always loved um, to play and explore and swim and fish in freshwater creeks and streams. Um, I'm fascinated by their them from the, the bugs that are in larval stages on the rocks and streams all the way to the, the birds that predate on the fish and the streams. So, um, you know, they're just... Our water systems, you know, almost all animals rely on water in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I, um, that is my preferred habitat. I love being in creeks and rivers. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.